Writer Amy Rosenthal once said, Pay attention to what you pay attention to. Pay attention to what you pay attention to. How often do we do this? How often do we consider the things and people to which we give our attention? Noticing what we attend to helps us to better understand how our attention is being cultivated and captivated. It helps us better understand what we truly love. Jesus goes to his hometown. It's the Sabbath day. So he goes into the synagogue and just as he has done in other towns and villages, he begins to teach. There is a sense of hometown pride as he begins to speak. The people are astonished. Jesus hasn't been away all that long, yet he seems to have learned so much. Where did this man get all this, someone says. What is this wisdom that has been given to him, another asks. He has power in his hand, another remarks. But just as soon as hometown pride waxes, does it begin to wane as a man and woman sitting off in the corner of the synagogue with a handful of their friends mutter under their breath, but loud enough for everyone to hear. Isn't that just Jesus? Isn't he that little boy that used to sit around telling stories instead of helping out at the food pantry? Isn't that Mary's boy? She never could get him to stop playing with birds and gazing at flowers. He never was much of a carpenter. And now he's come home and we're supposed to listen to what he has to say? You know this couple. They're the ones who remind the rector that it's never been done that way before. You may have been that person at some point. What has always struck me about this scene is that Mark tells us that Jesus could do no deed of power there because of their unbelief. But I hadn't quite noticed how what Paul writes to the Corinthians illuminates this passage. And since you of all people have gathered in church on July 4th, or you're tuning in online, or you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming that you're as interested as I am in unpacking this. Paul begins by telling this bizarre secondhand account of a man who he knows has gone up into paradise. In body and mind, we're not quite sure. Paul doesn't know, but whatever, he's heard things that no one can repeat. Sounds strange enough? Paul uses this story to introduce the virtue of boasting in one's weakness, as opposed to becoming prideful in one's strengths. That if there's anything to boast about, one must boast in their foolishness or weakness, but never in their intelligence or strength. Then Paul tells us that God gave him a thorn in the flesh so to keep him from becoming haughty, to help Paul resist the temptation of arrogance. We never learn exactly what this thorn in the flesh is, but the whole point for Paul in relaying all of this seems to be that it is his becoming weak 
and becoming responsible for his weakness that enables the power of God to become the active agent in his life. The embrace of weakness begets the power of God. Here's why I think this illuminates what's going on in Mark's gospel with regard to the unbelievers in Jesus' hometown. Knowledge, as Paul writes in his first letter to the Corinthians, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. When the people began blabbering about how they know Jesus is Mary's boy, saying, what makes him so special that we should listen to what he has to say? What they are expressing is a certainty about their own knowledge of who Jesus is. It is more than just some hometown boy makes good and comes back all grown up, ready to teach everyone what they never learned, and then getting upset about how arrogant he is. It's much deeper. This is an unwillingness to hear what Jesus has to say because they already know. They already know that what he is saying is not meant to come from his mouth. That's not who they know Jesus to be. And it's certainly not how they know that God speaks. There is a certitude about Jesus. This certitude about Jesus is a show of strength. And the trust they have in their own knowledge and understanding of how God acts is how they manage to keep God at bay. And God resists the temptation to force grace upon his people. Love, as Paul writes elsewhere, does not insist on its own way. The force of love is gentleness. God, therefore, works the works of God in accordance to the measure of our faith. Simone Weil speaks of this dynamic as a matter of attention. She says that prayer is the orientation of all the attention of which the soul is capable toward God. The quality of the attention counts for much in the quality of prayer. And then they writes, warmth of heart cannot make up for it. Warmth of heart cannot make up for our lack of attention. You see, in one respect, it doesn't matter how they feel about Jesus. Their capacity to attend to what Jesus has to say, or rather their incapacity, keeps them from moving beyond their feelings toward Jesus as the child they watched grow up, the child of Mary, not some Messiah sent by God. Think of it in these terms. I can feel all the love in the world toward Amanda, my wife, but if I do not give her my undivided attention and she give me hers... The quality of our relationship will be little more than sentimental, reduced to a contract. But if I know who I am as I am known by Amanda as her husband, it changes everything. Life becomes dynamic, adventurous even, 
And joy fills the nooks and crannies of our life together, even when we hurt one another's feelings. Many of us go through life feeling quite strongly about Jesus or the church without ever giving our full attention to Christ or life together in the body of Christ. The quality of our attention matters. And the difference between feeling strongly about Jesus and orienting our attention completely toward Jesus is the difference between knowing and being known. The people of Nazareth knew who Jesus was. They watched him grow up. They lived just down the street. They were grateful to see him return home and make his rounds right up until he, until he started teaching. They resisted being known by Jesus. They resisted having their lives interpreted by what he had to say. They refused to give him their attention, and in so doing, even the familial feeling toward him as a son of Nazareth vanished. And in Matthew's gospel, we learned that it vanished so much that they tried to push him off a cliff. And here's the kicker. Their felt need to show strength toward Jesus keeps them from the power of God. They could not admit their need for knowledge and wisdom beyond what they already knew. They could not imagine God doing something that God had never done in the way that God was now doing it. And in rejecting Jesus, they rejected being known by the loving God whose grace is sufficient, whose power is activated by weakness. Where and how we direct our attention tells us much. It's easy to interpret or offer commentary on just about anything from scriptures to other people, yet to be interpreted by the scriptures to receive our lives from others, from God, requires a non-anxious disposition where we first know ourselves as we are known by the God who is always gracious toward us. That's when we stop pretending to be strong. That's when we stop trying to shove our way through the world and make sure everyone knows that we are a force with which to contend. That's when we learn to embrace our weakness as mortals as well as our own particular weaknesses so that the power of God can work wonders in our lives. The disciples, we are reminded, were able to bear the power of healing and anointing not because they felt so strongly about Jesus, but because they removed all distractions. They took with them no bread, no bag, no money, no change of clothes. We get anxious when we leave home without our cell phones. If there was ever a time to pay attention to what we pay attention to, it is surely now. 
For until our attention is fixed on our being known by the God whose grace is all-sufficient, we will deny our weakness and dependence, keeping the power of God at bay, keeping ourselves from becoming who God has made us to be. The Lord said, My grace is sufficient for you. The Lord said, My grace is sufficient for you.